0: Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast episode number 257. Today's big Bible question, what is the New Testament gift of prophecy and should Christians still seek to prophesy? Well, happy Wednesday friends. I hope you are listening from a place that isn't burning down around you. And that your sun is yellow and bright like it should be and not weird and pinkish orange like our sun is in California right now. And actually across a lot of the west, thanks to all of the fires burning around here. I do praise God that our air quality, in Salinas at least, isn't bad. And the closest fires to us, to the uh, Bible reading podcast den, are 100% contained. So that's good news at least for our little city. Shout-outs to the new subscriber from New York City who downloaded 100 episodes today. Well, that'll only take you about 50 hours to listen to, so good luck with that. I hope you don't have a lot going on this week. And also, a new subscriber and friend from Nairobi, Kenya, who downloaded 95 episodes yesterday. Welcome aboard. I gotta tell you, Kenyan friend... Uh, and by the way, I just see where people download from. That's about all it tells me. The city and the state uh, or the city and the country or whatever. Um, I've been to Nairobi before. I love Nairobi. Beautiful people. Beautiful city. I love the Maasai I've been, Mara. I've been to several of the the churches in and around uh, Nairobi and uh, some other places around the city like uh, Kimilili and Terabu and uh, some other places I'm not thinking of right now. And oh my gosh, the fruit in Kenya, my friends, is so much better than the fruit in America. And I don't know why. There's like 50 different kinds of bananas and they're all delicious. The juices and the fruits, it just taste so much better. Maybe it's the GMO, I don't know. But man, you got to go get you some real genuine African fruit if you ever can. Uh, or maybe, uh, it's been a few years since I've been over there. Hopefully we haven't ruined their fruit yet. I'm not saying anything about... GMO just saying they have some good tasting fruit over in Africa. We also have new listeners the last couple of days from Maharashtra State in India, as well as Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, and Talangana. So thanks for subscribing to you, our friends from India. And shout out also to our friend from the good old United States who listens on YouTube and always has some insightful comments to share, including from yesterday's episode, Where What Huh?, on our YouTube channel, which you can find by searching for Chase Thompson AL, at C-H-A-S-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-A-L, or just come to BibleReadingPodcast.com, and we'll give you a link to our YouTube page, uh, says this, Regarding the Apostle John story from the pod yesterday, one wonders what effect this had on the young man's companions. To have seen the one among them who was the chief robber weeping bitterly in repentance, and to see the love of the old man John who risked his life and well-being to redeem this young man, would that not make them wonder what kind of madness this Christianity might be that such a man could be redeemed? Did this lead them also to the cross of Jesus in wonder and amazement? What effect did it have on John Newton's shipmates when the cruel slave trader, which is John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, used to be a slave trader before he was saved? The cruel slave trader, deserter from the Royal Navy, an adamant scoffer who ridiculed any slight belief in God... How did they react when he stopped kicking against the goads? Maybe the goal in our repentance is not merely for the salvation of our own souls, but also for the witness to those we know. Excellent, excellent. Excellent point, my dear friend, where what, huh? May we uh, see more fruits of our repentance in those that know us and our following of Jesus. May they uh, look to us and see the gospel lived out and spoken out. Well, today's Bible readings include more murder and mayhem, literally, in Second Samuel 3, with the two books of Samuel being the books of the Bible, at least so far, most likely to contain a murder or a plot or somebody getting stabbed in the stomach, or a head cut off, or a ghost, or some other fascinating and, you know, a little bit uh, chilling thing. Plus, we're going to read Psalm 51, Ezekiel 12, and 1 Corinthians 14, which has no murders in it and is our focus passage. Today, we are discussing the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy. And before we do that, we need to discuss the fact that many Christians believe that some. Not all, but some of the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 have stopped or ceased. This theological position, as we've discussed before, is called cessationism and is held by many people with a very high view of the scriptures. I do not myself hold that position theologically, but I have great respect for many who do and did, including such heroes of mine like Charles Spurgeon, who himself was a soft cessationist, who sometimes prophesied supernaturally, at least according to my understanding of the New Testament gift of prophecy. I am what's called a continuationist in the vein of John Piper, Sam Storms, Wayne Grudem, D. A. Carson, and many others, believing that the Bible does not teach that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as you know, tongues, healing, miracles, and prophecy—what we're going to be talking about today. I don't believe those gifts have ceased, and I believe that. Uh, I don't believe they've ceased, not based on my own personal experience primarily, but based on Bible passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 39-40, which says, So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. Now, cessationism is a theological school of thought that basically nullifies those two New Testament commands. If you are a cessationist, you will not obey the command to desire that you may prophesy. And you will, if you're pastoring a cessationist church, you will feel ne- that it is a necessity for you to forbid speaking in tongues. I can honestly think of no valid reason and no theological way to nullify any New Testament commands, so therefore I disagree with the cessationist position on spiritual gifts. But, as I said, have great love and respect for cessationist believers who are brothers and sisters in Christ. I just have never read a good explanation uh, from a cessationist on how you can get to the place where... You have a theological school of thought that allows you to nullify a couple of commands in Scripture. Well, I consider 1 Corinthians 14.1 an excellent summary of Paul's latter Corinthian chapters. We must pursue love first and desire spiritual gifts, especially that we should prophesy. Now, that verse, of course, brings up the very important question, what is New Testament prophecy and what should Christians seek to prophesy about? Well, in a moment, we're going to turn to Professor Wayne Grudem to help us answer that question, but first and foremost, let's go ahead and read our chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On on the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you? With a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known?' For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know what the meaning of the language is, I will be a foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that he can interpret For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in tongues, then, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are only to be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged." And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all of the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only?" If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone is ignoring this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. So, what is the gift of prophecy and what should Christians seek to prophesy since we are commanded to eagerly desire that gift? Well, let's turn to Professor, writer, and systematic theologian Wayne Grudem for an answer to these questions. First of all, his definition of prophecy, New Testament prophecy, from his systematic theology book says this, Although several definitions have been given for the gift of prophecy, a fresh examination of the New Testament teaching on this gift will show that it should be defined not as predicting the future, nor as proclaiming a word from the lord nor as powerful preaching but rather something along the lines but rather as telling something that god has spontaneously brought to mind as to what should be prophesied grudem has an answer on that question as well from his book on prophecy and this is what grudem says here The New Testament contains much material about the gift of prophecy, but very few actual prophecies are recorded. Is there any way then for us to find out the content of these prophecies? What did they actually say? What kind of statements did they contain? What kind of topics did they talk about? In fact, there is an even better way to find out the content of congregational prophecies than by examining some or even several quotations of actual prophecies, and that is to examine New Testament statements about the purpose and function of the gift of prophecy in general. What is it intended to do, and what does it actually accomplish? These general statements about the gift should give us a more accurate picture of the contents of prophecies than looking at a few Examples when we would have no way of knowing if the examples were themselves representative of the use of the gift as a whole. So our purpose today is to find out the function and purpose of prophecy. How does the New Testament see it as bringing benefit to the church? 1 Corinthians 14.3 says anything that would build up or comfort or encourage is in view here with prophecy. He who prophesies speaks to men for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. In this context, Paul is arguing that the Corinthians, in seeking spiritual gifts, should seek especially to prophesy. To prove this point, in verses 2-5 through of 1 Corinthians 14, he contrasts tongues and prophecy. No one understands the person speaking in tongues, so he's not speaking to men but to God. But by contrast, he who prophesies is speaking to men so that they can understand. And by a prophet's words, the hearers receive edification or encouragement and comfort. While the tongue speaker edifies himself, the prophet edifies the church. This is the reason, says Paul, that prophecy is superior to tongues. It brings more benefit to the church at large. This context suggests that prophecy was to be used for others, the context shows that Paul sees prophecy as an espe- essentially public gift. There's no indication that a prophet would prophesy in private for his own personal benefit. If he did, his prophecy would be on the same level as the tongues in 1 Corinthians fourteen four which says he who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds himself up, and this would not be the kind of prophecy the Corinthians were especially told to seek in verse 1. So unless prophecy functions in the assembled meeting of the church, or presumably a smaller meeting of some part of the church, it loses its preeminence among the gifts. While the context of 1 Corinthians 14.3 demonstrates the necessity for prophecy to function publicly, the three Specific terms used by Paul in this verse define more precisely the wide range of functions that prophecy was thought to have. Paul says, He who prophesies speaks to men for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The term used shows a broad range of edifying or building up function. The first word, upbuilding or edification is the greek word oikodome is said to be the result not just of prophesying but of many different human activities church discipline can bring edification we see in second corinthians 10:8 not offending others by what we eat brings edification says romans 14:19 self-denial for the benefit of one's neighbor will bring edification says romans 15:2 in acting in love will build up or edify others, says 1 Corinthians eight one. When the church comes together, any legitimate speech activity can result in edification. A hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation all give edification, says 1 Corinthians 14.26. In fact, says Grudem, according to Ephesians 4.29, which says, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying, all Christian speech, even that of ordinary conversation, should bring about this kind of edification. It is a general term that refers to any kind of help towards growth. growth in Christian maturity, and prophecy is one of the activities that contribute to the edification of Christians in the church. The second term, encouragement, which is the Greek word paraklesis, can mean comfort or encouragement or exhortation or appeal like in the urging of someone to do something good. Yet it has a weaker force than the word command. For Paul contrasts this verb, appeal or exhort, with the verb meaning command. I am bold enough in Christ to command you, yet I prefer to appeal to you, Paul says in Philemon. It is probable that the range of meanings of comfort, encouragement, exhortation was not neatly divided in the minds of Paul's readers, so any New Testament use like this one in 1 Corinthians 14.3, which is not further defined by context, might be thought to encompass a variety of speech activities, which it could include any or all of these elements. This word then, is not very restrictive in meaning and would allow for prophecy to include a variety of kinds of speech that would bring the hearers at times comfort, at times encouragement, and at times exhortation. So what is Grudem saying here? Well, he's saying that prophecy, prophetic words from people must always line up with scripture, first of all, but they should bring either comfort or, or encouragement, or edification. That is to say, they should be positive. I don't believe anybody should really say, thus saith the Lord these days. I think that's a little pretentious. But if you were going to give a prophetic word, you don't want to say something like, oh, brother James, I feel like the Lord hates you right now, and uh, you're a horrible person, and you should repent. That's not a good example of an encouraging or edification, edifying or comforting word from Scripture, and I believe, as does Grudem, that Paul limits New Testament prophecy to those three main areas: encouragement, edification, and comfort. So I'll close our discussion with a repetition of First Corinthians fourteen one, which says, "Pursue love." and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. On to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, warning rated, mature for violence. During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger, and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelite. His second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third was Absalom, son of Makkah, the daughter of King Talmel of Gesher. The fourth was Adonijah, son of Hagith. The fifth was Shephatiah, son of Abital. The sixth was Ithriam, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Ai, and Ishbosheth questioned Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry about Ishbosheth's accusation. Am I a dog's head who belongs to Judah? he asked. All this time I've been loyal to the family of your father Saul, to his brothers and to his friends, and Haven't betrayed you to David, but now you accuse me of wrongdoing with this woman? May God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare respond to Abner because he was afraid of him. Abner sent messengers as his representatives to say to David, Whose land is it? Make your covenant with me, and you can be certain I am on your side to turn all Israel over to you. David replied, Good. I will make a covenant with you. However, here is one thing I require of you. You will not see my face unless you first bring Saul's daughter Michal when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to say to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, Give me back my wife Makal. I was engaged to her for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ish-bosheth sent someone to take her away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband followed her, weeping all the way to Bahrim. Abner said to him, Go back. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. In the past, you wanted to be David to be king over you. Now take action, because the Lord has spoken concerning David. Through my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. Abner also informed the Benjaminites and went to Hebron to inform David about all that was agreed on by Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. When Abner and 20 men came to David at Hebron, David held a banquet for him and his men. Abner said to David, Let me go now, and I will gather all Israel to my lord the king. They will make a covenant with you, and you will reign over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner, and he went in peace. Just then, David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid and brought a large amount of plundered goods with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron, because David had dismissed him, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and his whole army arrived, Joab was informed Abner, son of Ner, came to see the king. The king dismissed him and he went in peace. Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look here, Abner came to you. Why did you dismiss him? Now he's getting away. You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and to find out about your military activities and everything you're doing. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David was unaware of it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab pulled him aside to the middle of the city gate, as if to speak to him privately, and there Joab stabbed him in the stomach, so Abner died in revenge for the death of Asahel, Joab's brother. David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner, May it hang over Joab's head and his whole father's family, and may the house of Joab never be without someone who has a discharge, or a skin disease, or a man who can only work a spindle, or someone who falls by the sword or starves. Hmm. Joab and his brother Abashai killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. David then ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. When they buried Abner in Hebron, the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept, and the king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet not placed in bronze shackles, You fell like one who falls victim to criminals. And all the people wept over him even more. Then they came to urge David to eat food while it was still day, but David took an oath. May God punish me and do so severely if I taste bread or anything else before sunset. All the people took note of this and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops in all of Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his soldiers, You must know that a great leader has fallen in Israel today. As for me, even though I am the anointed king, I have little power today. These men, the sons of Zariah, are too fierce for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you are living among a rebellious house. They have eyes to see but do not see, and ears to hear but do not hear. For they are a rebellious house. Now you, son of man, get your bags ready for exile and go into exile in their sight during the day. You will go into exile from your place to another place while they watch. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. During the day, bring out your bags like an exile's bags while they look on. Then in the evening, go out in their sight like those going into exile As they watch, dig through the wall and take the bags out through it. And while they look on, lift the bags to your shoulder and take them out in the dark. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So I did, just as I was commanded. In the daytime, I brought out my bags like an exile's bags. In the evening, I dug through the wall by hand. I took them out in the dark, carrying them on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, "'Hasn't the house of Israel, that rebellious house, asked you, "'What are you doing? "'Say to them, This is what the Lord God says. "'This pronouncement concerns the prince in Jerusalem "'and the whole house of Israel living there. "'You are to say, I am a sign for you. "'Just as I have done, it will be done to them. "'They will go into exile, into captivity. "'The prince who is among them will lift his bags to his shoulder in the dark and go out.' They will dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He will cover his face so he cannot see the land with his eyes. But I will spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it and he will die there. I will also scatter all the attendants who surround him and all his troops in every direction of the wind and I will draw a sword to chase after him. They will know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. But I will spare a few of them from the sword, famine, and plague, so that among the nations where they go, they can tell about all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, eat your bread with trembling and drink your water with anxious shaking. Then say to the people of the land, This is what the Lord God says about the residents of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. They will eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water in dread, for their land will be stripped of everything in it because of the violence of all who live there. The inhabited cities will be destroyed, and the land will become dreadful. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, what is this proverb you people have about the land of Israel, which goes... The days keep passing by and every vision fails. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord God says. I will put a stop to this proverb and they will not use it again in Israel. But say to them, the days have arrived as well as the fulfillment of every vision. For there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak whatever message I will speak and it will be done. It will no longer be delayed." For in your day's rebellious house, I will speak a message and bring it to pass. This is the declaration of the Lord God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, notice that the house of Israel is saying, The vision that he sees concerns many years from now. He prophesies about distant times. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord God says. None of my words will be delayed any longer. The message I speak will be fulfilled. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Psalm chapter 51 verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins, and blot out all my guilt." God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my... Mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Yes, Lord creating us a clean heart also. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.